obviously something failed along the way. Failure to launch Miami-Dade School's meltdown. You can't anticipate the unknown. They were not prepared. Finger pointing finally lands on a student. We have 16 year old operating a complex system with the capability to dismantle the learning process. Skeptics have questions, the scrutiny intense. But I will not suffer through some of the descriptions and some of the narrative that has been painted. COVID concerns take over another holiday weekend. We want to look at our beach areas and our tourist attractions, hotel lobbies. More oversight for South Florida's largest police departments. The community has been asking for this. It's all this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin today with unprecedented scrutiny into the aborted start to Miami-Dade school year, the shifting blame, the multi-million dollar contract with a failed platform product, hundreds of thousands of families left in an education void. School board vice chair Steve Gellin challenged the official narrative this week at a board meeting, and that is where the nine board members who set policy for the district discovered some startling facts for the first time. Dr. Gellin joins us now via Skype. Dr. Gellin, good morning. Good morning, Michael and Glenna. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We are so glad you are. Dr. Gallen, the Miami-Dade public school system has had some spectacular successes over the last several years. This week was a disaster, starting with the cyber attacks. Take us through it. What happened? Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, the Miami-Dade County Public Schools, as the fourth largest district in the nation, has realized uh, tremendous success over the past uh, decade. Uh, but this week, uh, starting with the opening, has been uh, a, a tremendously challenging uh, scenario for our students, our teachers, our employees, our parents, and the entire community. Uh, aside from the cyber attack, I think we had some initial challenges as we prepared to transition into a new platform with minimal time, minimal preparation, and minimal information as it relates to the history of this particular firm and this particular platform. Uh, so our Monday start off was, was uh, a challenge and in some cases disastrous uh, and it just got, it went from bad to worse throughout the week. Dr. Gallen, we, we sort of are going to attack this from two different perspectives. There was this functional meltdown for the actual system and then there was the actual platform, K-12, the company. So we're going to attack this in two different ways. Um, so first, let's talk about what happened because you you have a skeptical public here right now because what they've heard is on monday they heard this company cisco that the school board has been contracting with for years really an i.t company uh, that there was a switch that was bad so it was cisco's fault tuesday it was comcast's fault comcast didn't communicate failed to communicate with the district that's what they heard uh, wednesday it was a cyber attack and then thursday this was all blamed on a 16 year old and what experts, IT experts, say was a common and preventable denial of service tool. So with what you know, what, what really happened here? And I, and I think, Glenna, that is part of the problem. I think at the onset on Monday when we uh, were prepared to reopen our schools after a significant delay and denial of uh, educational experiences for our students, uh, the district uh, had a problem on Monday and as it relates to the entire shutdown of the entire system, uh, we anticipated the administration providing us an update as it relates to what happened. And as you and many witnessed, there was a strong convicted message that the issue involved a switch and involved Cisco. 
uh, we would have anticipated that those deliberations, that investigation, that inquiry would have taken place before we made a strong declaration as we did on Monday, but albeit we accepted that declaration, that explanation. As you indicated, the next day we anticipated everything being resolved, but Tuesday morning a problem continued to persist. It then pivoted from Cisco to being a problem with Comcast. And by late afternoon, we uh, realized that there was another issue with Comcast and that we were now under a cyber attack. So the narrative continued to change over the course of the week, and there lies the problem. I think we have an obligation to do our fact-finding, to deliberate over those particular issues that vets our district, that vets our system, and, and really give some sound information, not only to the board, but more importantly to the public. And I think there lies the problem in terms of us being able to maintain the confidence of the public and having the vulnerability of eroding their trust as the narrative continues to change. So with the arrest of a 16-year-old and what is, by all accounts, an easily available, publicly available, common program to just block down a system, why, if that is the case, and, and I guess my question one is, do you really believe that is what took down the school system? And number two, if so, why was not the IT department prepared for that if it has, as the superintendent said, fended off other attacks from foreign agents? Yes, absolutely. What I've shared before and what is not new to the public or new to the district is that we're under attack all of the time. Uh, what can't be lost in this particular narrative is that although we were under attack, there was no penetration. And to fathom that a 16-year-old could take down the fourth largest district, one that has an infrastructure and investment re of resources at $5.5 billion, I made it analogous to a Super Bowl NFL team being taken down by a Little League player. I also have not concluded that there is a nexus between these attacks and what has transpired over the course of the school week from Monday. Uh, I'm not convinced at this particular point, and I'm sure that there is more dust to settle. But as you indicated that we as a district cannot simply be responsive, we have to be proactive. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, two years ago proffered an item to take a look at this particular situation. Maria Rojas proffered an item relative to cybersecurity. So this is not something that is new to the board. This is not something that is new to the district. And this is definitely something that should have been anticipated, that should have been prepared for, and that we should have had the capacity to insulate ourselves from. Yeah. But again, I'm not convinced that there is a direct nexus between this uh, attack of the 16-year-old on our system and many of the problems that vexed our district throughout the week. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gallen, uh, at a news conference this week, uh, Superintendent Alberto Carvalho said that uh, there had been eight individual cyber attacks um, on the school system by this young man, but apparently there were many more, and he talked some, somewhat vaguely about attacks from China, Russia, Ukraine, Iraq. Um, uh, what's going on? I mean, who are these people who are trying to get in and disrupt uh, the Miami-Dade public school system? Obviously, we would anticipate that, as reported by the superintendent, that this would be an ongoing investigation if, in fact, that uh, reflects those attacks uh, and where they emanated from. But again, Michael and Glenna, let's, let's, let's be very, very clear. Uh, the, the disaster, the debacle that happened over this past week, uh, there's no direct nexus between the 16-year-old's alleged uh, attack on our system and what has transpired with students being denied education, teachers being denied the opportunity to teach, and our school leaders and district officials being uh, denied the opportunity to move forward in the manner that the board expects and that the community and children deserve. So with that said, in all of the 
really national attention that this 16-year-old got on Thursday and Friday. Um, this superintendent called the disruption, and I'm quoting him here, complex and malicious. And with what we know now, do you think that this was a complex and malicious act on his part? Uh, what was described, as a matter of fact, is that the 16-year-old allegedly utilized uh, very antiquated and unsophisticated means to attack our system. And these were means that were established nearly 17 years ago, and they have been described by many experts as unsophisticated. But we're a very sophisticated school district, so we expect, the board expects, the public expects, and I'm sure our superintendent expects for us to develop an infrastructure to stave off yeah. some primitive, unsophisticated attack from a 16-year-old student that lives in a two-bedroom apartment and attends one of our schools. Yeah. Uh, this is not a national uh, conspiracy. This is something that reportedly occurred locally. And again, I have not concluded that there is a nexus between what has perplexed our learning environment, our learning opportunities, with the alleged attacks of the 16-year-old uh, that we've arrested. And again, uh, I'm very careful to speak on a 16-year-old. He is still a minor. I do believe in the system of justice, and I will let the justice system run its course. So I'm not going to be in a position to indict, convict, and sentence uh, where an allegation has been made until it, the dust fully settles. Yeah, and we are glad to give that young man the presumption of innocence as well. Dr. Gallen, uh, this was called, and we've all learned much this week about how these things work, a dedicated denial of service attack. And one expert told the Miami Herald uh, who deals with these things, it's really easy to prevent the school system must be really out of date uh, on their uh, router configuration. Now, I don't know if this guy is right or not, but it sounds like he is. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and I shared with you j just a moment ago that this is not a new conversation that the board has led on. My colleague proffered an item that was passed by the board that directed the superintendent and the administration to take a hard look at our cybersecurity uh, infrastructure. Uh, that was approximately two years ago. Where we make investments in our school district, obviously uh, we've moved very rapidly to an online system over the past several years, and the infrastructure should be able to withstand something that is, again, a primitive, unsophisticated, uh, normalized attack on, on school districts and organizations and companies uh, throughout the world. Dr. Gallen, much to talk about with the actual contract with the virtual school company, K-12. We'll do that after this quick break. Stay tuned. We are speaking this morning with Dr. Steve Gallen, Vice Chair of the Miami-Dade County School Board. Dr. Gallen, the school system is using this product called My School Online, developed by a company named K-12. Turns out we only learned in the middle of the week that this $15.3 million no-bid contract wasn't even signed. So uh, is it in force, and was it a mistake on the part of Superintendent Carvalho that the contract had not been completed? Um, Michael, I don't want to, I wouldn't be in a position to speak for the superintendent and his uh, uh, proclivity relative to that contract, but what I will speak to is the obligation of the board. The board has an obligation to approve contracts that are $50,000 and above. However, the state statute does provide for some exceptions in which the superintendent does have wide latitude relative to contracts under emergency situations, uh, situations involving instructional materials, et cetera. So there's an option for the superintendent to bring all of those items to the board or not. 
in this particular case, that uh, option was elected not to bring it to the board. And where it is as it relates to a contract that has not been fully executed was something that we learned about in committee on Wednesday. Yeah, well, uh, did, can I interrupt you? I mean, were you concerned? I mean, did you say, oh my gosh, we are using this online learning system and we don't really have a, a fully executed contract? Well, absolutely. I think uh, the, the, the revelation during the middle of the committee meeting was, for many, a bombshell. It was a bombshell to me. Uh, but we did have some concerns going into the discussion relative to the K-12, not only its presence in our school district, but more importantly, its effectiveness in the teaching and learning of our students. Uh, that's why the discussion came up. It wasn't simply about the contract. The, the discussion was emanated on the issues relative to performance and effectiveness, and at this particular point, the entire transition has not performed as expected and has not been effective in the education of our students and in the ability of our teachers to teach. Uh, the added uh, layer of this particular narrative uh, was revealed when we found out that the contract was not fully executed. Our board chair uh, raised the issue, as she always does, in terms of leading this board as relates to critical issues around the contract, and it was revealed that the contract had not been fully executed, despite the fact that they had come in with a transitional plan, they provided training, uh, they provided, they were providing access to the curriculum, et cetera. So yes, the board does have some concerns, and I do expect and anticipate that that discussion and that level of accountability and transparency will be addressed this coming Wednesday at the school board meeting. Dr. Gallen, the superintendent was with us a few weeks ago, actually just prior to virtual school going online. So we had none of these issues to talk about. But we did have the track record of K-12 to look at. It is not a good track record as far as student outcomes, uh, allegations of politics involved and donations and contributions and investments. And, and we asked the superintendent about that. And what he said was, Contracting with K-12 was what he said, not his decision, that the state provides only two options for virtual school, and this one he thought was far superior, and he purchased the content of it and nothing else. It is, now that you've looked into K-12, what can you tell us about this contract that is missing his signature, as you said, but what can you tell us about how this came to be? Well, well, we clarified that in the committee meeting the other day. I was very adamant about that clarification. Yes, the state did provide for two approved online platforms, and K-12 was one. But the state did not, not mandate the utilization of either. So there was no mandate to utilize K-12 or Florida Virtual. So the fact that the state selected two, uh, we were not mandated to utilize it. But look, Michael and Glenna, there is a process that we have in place. There are current policies that we have in place to provide for that level of transparency, that level of discourse, that level of vetting by the board, as well as the public. Our instructional materials uh, process provides an opportunity for the board to vet instructional materials, but it also provides an opportunity for the public to weigh in. And because this was not brought to the board for approval, that vetting process did not take place. Yeah. Uh, as it relates to the superintendent's uh, responsibility for it, he is the CEO of the Miami-Dade County Public Schools. He is in charge of the day-to-day -day operations of the school system. And where he makes recommendations to the board, it is our obligation and opportunity to approve or reject those recommendations. In this particular case, that transition was led uh, by the superintendent, by his administration, and the accountability as it relates to that particular issue starts and stops at his desk. Yeah.
Dr. Callen, it is a given that COVID-19 has just thrown a huge monkey wrench into life in general and into our public schools, into all schools. So that's, that's, as I say, that is a given. And yet, looking at what happened this week, I mean, the meat of what you all do in the Miami-Dade County Public Schools is teachers teach, students are supposed to learn. But that only happened intermittently this week. I mean, this was really a, a bad outcome. How's it going to get better? Uh, I believe that it's going to get better uh, with the leadership of our board, uh, obviously the leadership of our administration, our superintendent. But I'm banking my money on our teachers in the schools, our school leaders in the schools, our parents who are going to hold us accountable, who are going to be actively engaged in their student learning. And, and this too shall pass. But what we have to do, we have to take a hard look at what happened and make sure that we take positions from a policy perspective to make sure that it does not happen again. There has to be lessons learned. Yes, we can be very good at correct and response, but we have to be proactive and anticipatory in terms of these particular issues that have affected our district. But most importantly, as you indicated, Michael, has denied the learning of our students. Hundreds of thousands of students did not realize the learning that they deserve, that they're entitled to, and that the public expects us to deliver on a day-to-day -day basis. So, yes, we have work to do, but I know uh, and I'm confident that we will persevere throughout this particular process with transparency, collaboration, but also accountability to make sure that we move this needle forward. So that, real quickly, that all sounds really great, but more immediately, Tuesday after Labor Day, what can, there's going to be a lot of people watching this who are wanting to know on Tuesday morning what to expect for their students. It, Tuesday morning, is there change? Well, there, there have been changes already, Glenna, and I, that's why I'm saying that the kudos goes to our teachers. Uh, as you may be aware, many of our teachers in grades 6 through 12 have already transitioned from the K through 12 platform. Those teachers are also already using uh, different platforms that are proven to be successful, that they're fully trained on, and that are able to allow them to engage their students. We're going to transition to those particular opportunities for our K through 5. And as the superintendent indicated, we're going to make a determination as it relates to whether or not we're going to move forward with the K through K 12 platform altogether. But make no mistake about it, our teachers have already uh, made decisions. They made classroom academic decisions that are based on what is best for their children and their parents, and they've started to pivot. Uh, has it been done wholesale throughout the district? Absolutely not. And for me, that's an equity issue as it relates to some children getting something and other children not getting it. And we're going to have to make it right for all children because we promise all children in the Miami-Dade County Public Schools the world. And Dr. Steve Gallen, appreciate your time. Really good to have you with us. And thank, thank you. you so much for all that good information. It is thank the, you. thank you, Dr. Callen. It's the Labor Day holiday, obviously, and people are getting out and getting ready to enjoy themselves despite kind of bad weather. All right, so how does that fit in with COVID-19 rules and regulations? Broward Mayor Dale Holis joins us next. Thank you. There has been some very positive news this week about COVID-19 in Broward County. The positivity rate from testing consistently has been below 5%. Before the county, though, can move to phase two, opening that rate needs to hold for 14 days. This holiday weekend poses a concern for those managing the pandemic. One of them, Mayor Dale Holness, was pretty optimistic at his news conference on Friday. Joining us now from Fort Lauderdale via Skype, Mayor, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Uh, so, thank you very much for having me on. Always. So the uh, the bookend holidays of summer, Memorial Day and Labor Day, 
After Memorial Day, we did see a spike in COVID cases. Uh, the situation is sort of very different three months later. Are you worried like that for Labor Day weekend? Very concerned about Labor Day weekend. We know people are going to enjoy themselves and we want them to do so, but safely. Uh, so we have put a lot more code enforcement folks. We're working closely with police departments across the county. And I'll tell you that last night there were 325 inspections, 19 violations issued, eight citations uh, with or, or staff from the county. And that's in addition to whatever the cities did also that weren't done jointly with us. So we are, we're being vigilant. It is important that we maintain this positive rate of less than 5% for 14 days to give us the opportunity for us to uh, reopen the, econ the economy better so we can ensure that people are able to take care of their livelihoods. Yeah. Uh, well, it's good to know that the enforcement is going on. I saw Sheriff Tony on Friday. He said also that BSO is going to be working hand-in-hand uh, -hand with code enforcement. I've got to say, anecdotally, last weekend, we drove down Las Olas Boulevard in the evening, and it kind of looked like, you know, there was no pandemic. People were clustered. People were drinking outside of some restaurants. Uh, uh, but I take it that you're cracking down. We have to. Uh, the fact is this, most of our, our citation and our violations uh, are from restaurants, uh, not wearing masks, not socially distancing. Uh, that's a huge, huge concern for us. Uh, we implemented a 311 number for people to call to report any, any violations. And so to date, we've had over 10,000 uh, calls uh, for reporting people who are not doing what they ought to have been doing to help bring this spread of this virus down. Uh, 274 citations have been issued as a result of that. And we're constantly out there working to make sure that we're maintaining the vigilance. Now, everyone needs to understand we're in this together. And though you want to enjoy the weekend, you have to think about the health and well-being of everyone and yourself. And the economy. The, uh, the dashboard that the county has that outlines, the public can look and see who, where the citations and the warnings are throughout the county. And these, these are businesses, right? The, the dashboard is businesses, not individuals. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So, the dashboard has businesses. Okay. So the 19 violations that you just talked about on businesses um, yes. characterize those. Is that social distancing? Is that sanitary? I mean, the state inspects for sanitation and code as well. So are these COVID-specific violations? They are COVID, primarily COVID. There's some sanitiz sanitization in it also. Uh, they look at the whole thing. And, and again, most of what we're seeing is uh, not uh, wearing facial covering and social distancing. In, in the businesses, I want to just make that distinction. Yes, correct. Okay, the so, so then it is the, on a scale of one to 10, the business community that, that we've seen tries to be generally very compliant. Is that the issue or is the issue individual responsibility? So it, it's both. And, and we started to fine individuals $100 uh, if they're not wearing facial coverings, uh, that they take social personal responsibility because they are, we're, all of us are responsible. So we want to make sure that, that the public understands that it's not just the business that will be fined, it's individuals also that will be fined if they're not uh, following the protocols that we set in place to yeah. safeguard our health. Yeah, uh, Mayor Holness, uh, as you well know, on Tuesday, Palm Beach County is going to be moving into phase two, reopening 
more of the economy and uh, uh, how close do you think Broward County is? The positivity rate for testing is what for 10 straight days, it's been below 5%, which is really good. Uh, how, how much better do you have to be before you go to phase two? Well, if you look at uh, Palm Beach's positivity rate, they, they have been much lower than us uh, over the past uh, three weeks. Uh, we are just at about 5%. We want to see consistently at least 14 days below 5% positivity rate uh, in order for us to look to reopen. But understand also that we have uh, gone to some phase uh, two already with our uh, bowling alleys and, and uh, movie theaters being open, uh, though restricted. So we will look to see how we can phase in the rest of phase two as we go along uh, with the positive rate below remaining low. That is why it's so essential for all of us to participate in bringing the spread of the virus down. Will the phase two decision be yours, or is that something that the governor has to grant before you can go there? So the process is that we will request from the governor to allow us to go to phase two. Uh, once we have done so, uh, then we will then be able to enter phase two. Uh, the decision is going to be one that's collective on the part of the uh, county administrator with input from the elected officials from Broward County and also our mayors. We're looking to have a mayor's call uh, for our mayors across the county uh, next week. We do that pretty much on a weekly basis get their input uh, because we're in this together and we have to work together to safeguard our health and ensure that we're looking to revive our economy so people can get back to work. Yeah, Mayor Dale Holness, we appreciate your time and let's certainly hope that we all get through this weekend up there in, in Broward County. Well, we are in and Broward everywhere. County. <laughs> that everywhere we get through this weekend without sort of a, a upsurge of people disregarding uh, the threat from COVID-19. Even in your homes, look to see if you're having events at your home that you also safeguard yourself and your family by wearing facial coverings and social distancing. Good advice. Thanks, Mayor. Thank and you. Up next, uh, another health check. Those declining COVID rates are driving policy changes. Our expert, uh, Dr. Eileen Marty, is going to weigh in when we come back. As South Florida's COVID positivity rates continues its downward trend, the push and pull continue over loosening rules and restrictions. This week, among other developments, the governor looked for advice from the White House health advisor who wants to stop testing asymptomatic people. He wants to follow the example of Sweden, which was not that successful. So what are the implications for us? Let's ask our go-to source for expertise on all things COVID-19, <laughs> Dr. Eileen Marty. She joins us from Miami Beach. Uh, Dr. Marty, good afternoon. Good to see you. Good afternoon. Great to see you guys. Uh, you know, let's begin. We'll get to Dr. Atlas in just a minute. But here we are, as Glenna said earlier in an interview, uh, the bookends of summer. We had Memorial Day. Now we have Labor Day. Uh, Memorial Day uh, produced a huge surge. I mean, by July, in as you well know, uh, the hospitals were jammed. We had many sick people, people dying. So what is your expectation here for Labor Day? Well, I do think the community has gotten the message that they have to be careful in these family gatherings. And, um, and everyone is well aware of what happened after Memorial Day. So I'm really hoping 
um, that people will keep all that in mind so that we don't see a huge surge two weeks from Labor Day, which is when we would start to see cases rising as a consequence of any um, excessive behavior during Labor Day. Or it is an excessive behavior. It's just it's normal behavior that can't be done during the pandemic. Do you see, Dr. Marty, the difference in those two holidays in the atmosphere and the knowledge and perhaps the buy-in of, of just generally people going about their business much more open now than was after Memorial Day, but many more rules in place as well. And although there's been pushback, we know on those, what are you seeing in the community? Are you optimistic about that? I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, when I uh, have to uh, go to the clinic or, 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 or out and about for a variety of reasons, I do see many more people complying with the concept of uh, physical distancing and the use of masks and better use of masks than I saw at the end of May. So there is, there is a shift in the community. There is an awareness that we just went through a horrific time. And I think business owners are acutely aware of how incredibly important it is um, to, to work with us because they know that if the situation gets very bad again, we'll have to start walking back some of the openings that we've done and no one wants to do that. Yeah, uh, Dr. Marty, uh, this week or in recent weeks, we have seen the president turn to a new medical advisor for help and uh, direction on coronavirus and COVID-19. His name is Dr. Scott Atlas. He is a uh, neurobiologist, um, uh, radiologist at Stanford, and he has a quite different approach to it. I want to run a couple of sound bites from Dr. Atlas and have you react. Herd immunity. It's very important that that develops. That's how viruses are eradicated. Population-based immunity, which is the most immediately available way to get rid of this threat. All right, so you heard him there. He says herd immunity is the way to get rid of this threat. Explain what herd immunity is and does it work? So the concept comes back to the early 1900s and ranchers talking about how to protect their herds uh, from any particular type of infectious agent. And they recognized that when a large population of the herd, a large percentage of the population of the herd was protected, it protected those animals that for whatever reason could not be vaccinated or protected in some way from an infectious agent. So that's where the term comes from. And it applies to infectious diseases in general because many diseases, but not all, uh, there we can develop this kind of long-term immunity in a population that has to be somewhere upwards of 85%, ideally 95 or 98%. That's what we really look for. And that's uh, what the whole concept of vaccination is all about and trying to have as many people vaccinated for something as possible to reduce the level of threat. Having said that, that it's a real concept in immunology, and um, and I find it surprising that there's someone with absolutely no expertise in infectious disease <laughs> providing this information, yeah. because he has none. 
Um, he's also failing to see the most important aspect, which is how do you get there? And when you let a wild and destructive and dangerous virus simply infect people, that means that a certain percentage of people are going to end up ridiculously sick uh, to levels that we have to hospitalize. And uh, and again, if we, if we just let the virus run wild, then we'll have so many people in hospital that it, once again it becomes very difficult to manage and it's much harder to use the modern medical tools that we have to keep people from dying even those that we might otherwise save if we didn't have unbelievably high numbers of cases at the same time so uh, not only is this going to lead to more deaths simply because there are more cases but uh, you know uh, from the percentage that would die because they have such overwhelming disease, but also because when you have an overwhelming number of cases, it's even harder to treat those that you might otherwise be able to save. So it's a it's a death sentence for a lot of people to have this particular It's much better to accomplish herd immunity with a a safe and effective vaccine, which is what we've been working towards for months now. And it would be really unbelievably tragic that when we're at the cusp of having something that could get us completely out of this pandemic and create herd immunity safely, that we would let things run wild. Yeah, you know, if I may, uh, your point of view has been echoed by Dr. Tom Frieden, former head of the CDC. He said recently, trying to get herd immunity other than with a vaccine isn't a strategy, it's a catastrophe. That's right. So, you know, I, I, talking, I know Dr. Friedman, and I totally agree with him. Now that we're talking about vaccines, a good time to bring up some bit of news that surfaced in the last couple of days that I'm, I'm guessing is going to be really concerning is that when this vaccine process on the fast track and we may or may not have something by the end of the year to talk about, but but polls that have been taken this week show that there is a significant number of the population that will not get, will not submit to that first vaccine. And one in four people who just won't choose to get the vaccine at all. It, it, does that sound like something that is generally what happens with new vaccines or is that concerning to you? Oh, it's extremely concerning, but it, it, it has to do with a lot of false advertising from all levels about about how vaccines are made and when they're safe and when they can be done. Uh, and I don't think that what's going on right now in our government is is providing the kind of assurance that people need to realize that that we will have a safe and effective vaccine that they can feel confident in. I myself, I need to see the data, the real data from the results of at least six months worth of, of a phase three trial uh, with having multiple uh, people from multiple different walks of life and, and races and genders and so forth before I would recommend that a vaccine uh, is good, safe, and effective. So we need time to develop that vaccine. We're working on it. We may, I'm cautiously optimistic, as is uh, Dr. Fauci, that we may have something by the beginning of 2021 that may be safe and effective. And I think that uh, people should understand that those of us who, who are looking for the right solution will not recommend a vaccine until we know it is safe 
and effective. And once we do, then I think that people can feel confident that we're, we're, we're speaking from hard science, which is what we will do, people like myself. Dr. Eileen Marty, always the voice of scientific reason that we love to have. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you so Dr. much for Marty. your time today. All right, after several tries, both Miami-Dade and Broward counties created citizens' investigative panels to review allegations of misconduct by police. But that fight actually isn't over yet. Welcome back. After several tries, hours of debate, and significant changes, Miami-Dade commissioners this week decided to bring back an independent review panel to review cases of officers accused of misconduct. Broward County is going to consider creating such a panel this coming week. City of Miami has had its own civilian investigative panel in place for several years, and the gentleman you see there, Rodney Jacobs, was instrumental in setting it up. He joins us now via Skype. He is the assistant director of the panel. Rodney, uh, good afternoon. Great to see you. Hey, good afternoon, Michael and Glenn. It's good to be back. All right. So let me ask you, the panel that the Miami-Dade Commission approved this week, I believe on an eight to four vote, which the mayor says he will approve, he had vetoed some previous plans, uh, it's got limited powers, uh, does not have subpoena power over county employees or certainly over police. Is it still worth the effort to have this? Absolutely, Michael. I mean, in many ways, this is a landmark and monumental decision. I think at any time that we could have a civilian oversight of law enforcement in any jurisdiction, it works towards having a more collaborative police department so that people in the community can feel more safe and transparent when conducting business with police officers. I think for a long time, there has been a, a hiatus of, of police officer transparency for the county. Uh, so to have this kind of oversight uh, for the largest police department in the South is instrumental. I think a lot of places are gonna be looking towards Miami-Dade County for what right looks like in policing. In interesting that you use the word landmark because the county actually had one of these exact types of panels prior to about, what, 10 years ago, and it was not renewed because of budgetary constraints. So can, can you take us through what worked and didn't work then and how will this be different now? Well, well, first and foremost, just the construction itself. Uh, before um, what we have now, the, uh, the oversight entity was more so for all county employees. It looked at a myriad of infractions, uh, not only just police officers. This one hones in and focuses strictly on policing itself. Uh, so I think having that laser kind of focus over oversight gives you a more efficient and effective panel. Uh, I think uh, although the uh, subpoena powers are tied into an extent, uh, the, the department will still be able to subpoena evidence and information uh, to allow investigators to do their work efficiently. But I think one of the best things Glenna, that this panel does is, is that it looks at uh, patterns and practices of police officer misconduct and abuse. And I think with that kind of collaboration with the police department, another outside eye that's looking continuously day after day, we can only hope to get the best police department in America. Yeah, uh, Rodney, uh, the Miami panel, which you run, uh, it does have subpoena power, doesn't it? It does. So the city of Miami uh, civilian investigative panel does have subpoena power. Uh, there is no uh, restrictions on that outside of what uh, the state law precludes us from doing. So at the city, we do have a, a little bit more breath with our subpoena. Uh, but on the county, the way this is going to work is it's going to ask uh, and seek a cooperative relationship with the Miami-Dade Police Department. It's just my opinion under a director like Freddie Ramirez or his predecessor Juan Perez, 
they're probably going to be willing to cooperate pretty well up to a point. What do you think? I would agree with that, Michael. I think the current director and obviously hopefully future directors and the sheriff would cooperate. I mean, would collaboratively work with the panel. I, I think any time that you're a professional in law enforcement, um, and you're looking to do the right thing. The thing you're looking to avoid most is bad policing. So anyone that wants to assist in that in that type of collaborative action, I think they would uh, open their arms towards. And I think having this uh, from a community perspective gives trust back into policing. And those who are who, who were not uh, in favor at all of this measure was the police union. It's pre President Stedman Stahl, who I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but he's been here. He's been in our program. We've spoken enough, so I can uh, say with some some knowledge that he, he feels like you feel that there is plenty of oversight for bad mm -hmm. policing. That he would never want anyone to be a bad police officer, but th those over that oversight is in place. And his biggest questions were the details. What is the cost of this? What is the role? What what will the outcomes be? Those are valid questions. Well, yeah, I think anytime you're spending taxpayer money on something, uh, it, it's it's big questions to be had. Uh, but I think what the community has asked for over the last six or seven months is more layers of transparency that looks at an outside independent entity to do that kind of informational research um, and to do it on a continuous basis. Here at the city of Miami, we, we have a panel department that has been working tirelessly day in and day out, looking at ways our police department can be better. And I think that's in some ways why you haven't seen city of Miami officers engaging in some of the infractions that we've seen uh, like we have seen at the Miami-Dade Police Department at airports and such. Uh, but I think right now we're, we're at a time now that we're past kind of the adversarial approach of, of this department being in place. Right now we're at a place where we all need to come together uh, and have hope and for a better police department. And I think we'll do that. I think having this is better than not having it at all, especially in a place like Miami-Dade County. As I said before, right now people are going to be looking at us. The largest police force in the South has oversight. And I think that matters. And I think we're leading the, we're leading the way in that effort. Yeah, you know, Rodney, you have been involved in this for many years. Uh, clearly, after the death of George Floyd and subsequent Breonna Taylor and others now, Rochester, New York, the death of Mr. Prude, uh, there is a huge conversation about policing in this country. And then you just saw this week the mayor of Rochester fired seven police officers against yep. the advice of counsel. I mean, we are in a period of reform and change, are we not? Oh, we are indeed, Michael. And, and I think you and Glenna will probably know best. Um, you know, these are conversations we've been having for a very long time, long before I probably was even alive, about reimagining policing and figuring out ways to do public safety uh, that looks more like keeping people alive and safe in our communities than just hauling people off to jail for every little infraction. I think right now we're at that point where people have had enough and that we're looking to, to lean into more to this issue, not just allow these situations to happen and then move on to the next current event. Uh, right now, people are listening, they're focusing in, and they're in, they're putting the effort where it needs to be so that we can all solve this issue and move forward. I think oversight is that necessary vehicle that will allow us to do a lot of that gritty work. It will allow us to collect data. It will allow us to look at well, patterns and practice. I, I beg your pardon. We are out of time. We're very oh, grateful okay. you coming and joining us. Glad to have your insights always. Great to see you. Oh, Thanks, sure. Rodney. And we'll be right back. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We are online 24-7 at local10.com. Have a safe and COVID-free Labor Day weekend. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Bye.